This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by David Jones and their new Skinnovation platform, celebrating the best and brightest in skincare. You can sometimes, especially as women, we can stick very closely to the path that we have set out in our heads. I was so set on this idea of what my job and my life was going to be for the next however many years. And I suddenly turned around and went, it doesn't actually work for my life anymore. You know, it, it was the goal of the 14-year-old me and probably the, you know, the many, many ages after, but it wasn't necessarily the right goal for the 40-year-old me. I think these things need to stay fluid. And he'd be like, you know, you've talked a lot about comfort zones over the years, but I don't think you've ever really left yours. This is what this means. Like this is this is the, the literal definition of leaving your comfort zone. Mm. Then I'd be like, I know, but my old comfort zone came with free handbags. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. I know I say it all the time, but I want to thank you all again for giving me a reason to create this show. I've had some lovely, lovely messages recently about how the podcast and the book have helped bring some yay to a tumultuous year, and it has absolutely done the same for me at this end. Chatting to our guests allows me so much growth and inspiration, so honestly, it is just a pure bonus that some of you also gain as much as I do, and it definitely makes people more likely to say yes And if it was just me creeping on them to ask intimate questions about their lives outside the context of a podcast. And this week's guest is someone I've admired for a long time, so I'm feeling very grateful to have Justine Cullen on the show. Few people actually end up living out their childhood dreams, either because the dream changes or because life does. But enchanted by the glossy pages of the first fashion magazine she ever read, Justine made it her mission to conquer the extremely competitive, coveted and sometimes convoluted ladder of the publishing world and ultimately landed her dream job as editor-in-chief at Elle magazine. Her journey reinforces everything I love to say about being open to whatever pathway might get you to your dream and being patient with the steps along the way, but it's her journey from that dream that I found most interesting in how it forced her to untangle her identity from the prestige, the title and everything that satisfied her former self to build the next chapter for the new person she had become. As well as the existential crisis of success and the beauty of going back to being a beginner, Justine also dishes up some juicy stuff that we all love to hear about how editor life isn't just swanning around and definitely isn't always easy. I was definitely a tiny bit satisfied to hear that. (laughs) And as a mum of four, she is more than qualified to share some words on priorities, balance and humility. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. 
lovely Justine. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you, so much so that we've already been talking for about 20 minutes before we started recording. (laughs) (laughs) So you might know I start every episode by asking what the most down-to-earth thing is about you, just as a little icebreaker to cut through the often glossy surface of our lives, particularly for guests like yourself. I mean, you've had some incredibly impressive titles in industries that literally involve glossy surfaces of coveted magazines. So it's very easy to forget that you're also a mum of four and a human being who I'm sure has many, many relatable things behind the scenes. So what is something normal about you? But I do love this question because as a mum of four, a working mum of four, I've got nothing that's not relatable about me I'm only relatable you know (laughs) I think that's one of the great things about parenting is that it's this amazing leveler where it doesn't matter if you're Beyonce or Kate Middleton or whoever you might be you know that they're at some point treading on a Lego and cursing and they're you know cleaning up someone's vomit on their hands and knees and you know, at any time you look at me, I've probably got nits. I, you know, there <laughs> those things that you can't escape as a parent. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I do like that it's a great leveler in that way. Mm, I definitely think this is an, a much easier question for parents to answer because there's always some kind of bodily fluid or something that you can refer to. Exactly. <laughs> Either your own or someone else's. Like who, who could say? Sometimes it's all just mixed in together. <laughs> Well, I still think it would be very hard for many people to imagine with some of the incredible things that you've done, but I love that. And I love, I think it's a great place to start. So the first section is your way TA, which is pretty much tracing back, doing the exact same thing as that first question does. We will obviously work to the wonderful things you've been able to achieve, but I think people who walk in on this chapter of your life where you have all that experience and insight and reflection under your belt, it's easy to forget that once upon a time you were a kid and you had no idea what you wanted to do and what life would bring. And I think tracing through all the pivotal moments of decisions that led you to where you are is really reassuring for people who maybe don't yet know where they want to end up or don't yet believe that their career path might be possible. Mm -hmm. So tell us about young Justine. What were you like as a child? What back then did you think you wanted to be? Like the job that you have now probably didn't even exist then. So tell us about young you. You're right. Not the exact job, but I did want to be an editor-in-chief from a very young age, from from pretty much from when I could read. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah, so I've never I've never wanted anything else. I didn't come from a, a family with a lot of money. We, we weren't particularly connected or anything like that. Lots of love, just not lots of cash. And I think that that may be, I don't know, like the Americans call it coming from a place of lack. And I think that was a real you know, driver for me. So I was very aware of, I, I guess I had my eye on the prize from a very mm. young age. And that prize wasn't necessarily about money. It was just about, I, I guess, a bigger life in some way. But who, what was I like? I mean, I was really shy. I definitely wasn't a kind of a boss lady type. Wow. Not until I was maybe even in my twenties or getting close to being an actual boss, I don't think. All I cared about were books and Barbies. That was... <laughs> That was my childhood. And I guess now that makes sense as I sort of merged them. That actually really <laughs> works out well for you. <laughs> you know, I, there was some strategy there, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, looking back at that time, I love that you knew what an editor-in-chief was. Like I love that you knew that that was the role that you kind of were heading for. What did you think it took 
to to get there. Like I think it's re- very reassuring to know that you don't have to be born into a publishing family. You don't have to be really well connected and start off in with any particular background to actually get into those really coveted positions. But again, you have to start somewhere in the industry. And I imagine that starts even from something like getting coffee for people. So oh, how did you get your first job? Like what did you study journalism? Like what was the pathway? No. So at that age, my mum used to buy me, um, She, my mum loves vintage and she loves a rummage. And so she used to go to Trash and Treasure and she would bring me back these ancient copies of Dolly and Cleo, really old, out of date magazines. But I would pore over them and I loved them. And, you know, in those days, the editor's letters were really intimate and they really kind of built this idea of these teams of of amazing women working together and creating something incredible and having so much fun while, I, while they did it. And so that was always I was just like, I want in. I need to be part of that. So that was, I guess, where I learned that there was such a thing as an editor and, and all of these interesting roles and jobs that I never heard about through school or anywhere else. And so I started, they would talk about their work experience girls in those editor's letters. And so I started doing work experience really early and I would go back in all my holidays and after school and just show up like in my school uniform ready to help out and do whatever I had to do. And when you brought up, were you making coffee? You know, I remember my very first day of work experience. It was at Elle magazine when it existed before I relaunched it. And it was the first place I'd ever, first magazine I'd ever shown up to. And they had, I'd walked into the office and the fashion assistant had thrown these Chanel bags at me. And she was like, take them to the studio and guard them with your life. And, like, <laughs> and I'd never, like, I'd never been in a taxi by myself before, you know, without my mum. So I jumped in a cab and I go to the studio and I walked into this set and it was Elle McPherson being shot. It was so magical. It was just like this incredible moment of like, oh my God, this is it. I've arrived. And I had no reason to stay after I dropped off the bag. So I was trying to make myself busy, but I'd also never made a coffee because we were a tea family. (laughs) So I was too scared to make a coffee for probably the first three years of my work experience. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I had to make myself really handy in other ways. I was, you know, I was very, very good at work experience. I don't think I've ever been as good at anything ever since. (laughs) You peaked at work experience student. I really did, yeah. (laughs) And so was that how you then built up into actually getting your first role and making your way into the industry, you know, as an actual employee? Yeah, so I was offered a job at Girlfriend Magazine when I was still in year 12. I hadn't quite finished my HSC exams and I had every intention, of course, of going to uni and, and studying journalism. But then this came up and I thought, oh, I'll do it for a little while and then, you know, and then I'll go to uni and it sort of just never happened. Yeah. I've been deferring for 30 years. <laughs> just waiting for that enrolment date to come back <laughs> around again. <laughs> yes, yeah, so so I started, I was 17 when I started at, at Girlfriend Magazine at, as editorial assistant. And um, it's all just flown on from there, I guess. Oh, my gosh. That's another really reassuring point in your story, I think, as well, that often we all in the educational system think, you know, have dreams of going to uni and what career paths different degrees are going to lead to. But you don't always have to take that pathway. I think people get very attached to, like, I need a university degree. And, of course, it's it's never a waste. It can open a lot of doors. But you can also make it without it I mean you were offered the job before you even finished school so obviously what was you know if you'd stuck rigidly to the idea that you needed to go to uni you might have missed the opportunity to just go for what 
was actually available to you. Look, I do think, though, we're talking about the early 90s and it was such a less competitive time. Mm. I mean, I look now at some of our interns and the amazing degrees they have and incredible experience that they already have. And and I think, oh, God, you know, I would have I would have not been able to get through it at this time just based on instinct and (laughs) being a really, really good work experience girl. So, um, yeah, it was a different time, but I agree. And I, and I think you can sometimes, especially as women, we can stick very closely to the path that we have set out in our heads, you know, thinking, okay, I need to, particularly in my industry, you know, maybe they want to be in a t- certain type of magazine or, or they think that they can only start their career at a certain job or at a certain level. But I think you really just have to take those opportunities as they come and see, do what feels right. And, and kind of, you know, have an end goal in sight, but almost be, let the flow take you where it will. Mm, I often say, I think it's, I can't actually remember who the quote's attributed to, but you can always stick to the goal, but be flexible about your methods. Like the end goal where you want to end up might be the same, but if you st- like stick too rigidly to one particular pathway of getting there, you actually preclude the possibility that that's not actually the right way. Like mm-hmm. the one you think is the right way to get there might not be the one that works out to be the best for you. Or mm-hmm. you you just preclude the, the chance of anything better arriving on your doorstep. And particularly with the world as it is now and how fast it's changing. I mean, I've lived through an industry that just went through some rapid change. And, you know, I think you you really have to be open to the idea that maybe maybe your goal doesn't even end up being the same you know that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving Elle was because I was so set on this idea of what my job and my life was going to be for the next however many years and I suddenly turned around and went it doesn't actually work for my life anymore I don't love getting money every couple of weeks and leaving my kids and you know it was the goal of the 14 year old me and probably the you know the many many ages after but it wasn't necessarily the right goal for the 40-year-old me. And so I think these things need to stay fluid. So, so true. I think every chapter of your life is going to require different things of you and you're going to require different things from life as well. And I think one of the best things that you can equip yourself for the future with is just to be adaptable. Mm. You need to be willing to change so that you can be fulfilled because what fulfilled you 20 years ago is probably not going to fulfill you now and who you've become over the last, you know, couple of decades. Mm. And I think there's also that idea that's really fascinating of sometimes you actually hit your goal and it's wonderful at the time, but then I think a lot of people have a bit of an existential crisis of success where it's like what what do I do next? I've never actually made any plans for after I achieve the goal and I've got many more years in the workforce. So sort of what what comes next then? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I definitely went through that and actually had to get a little bit of professional help to help me kind of comprehend what came next because you do think, oh, we've got 20 more years in the workforce. What do I contribute now? What do I strive for? Mm. So before we dive into that, because I think that's a really important thing because I think a lot of people go through that and maybe not even because they hit their goal and then have a success crisis, but also because that goal this year in the craziness of 2020 might have been stripped away from them and then they're still doing that same re-evaluation process. Mm. On the journey to actually get there, what went through your mind? I think we're so attuned to instant gratification that you once you decide you want to be an editor, you want to be the editor the next day. We don't like having to take really small patient steps to actually build up to where we want to be. Mm. 
How did you sit with each stage? And your first editor position was as a deputy beauty editor and at the BBC also, which I thought was really interesting. Like your path is going to take you in lots of different directions. What was going through your mind at each of those stages? Was it just like I'm biding my time till I can get to the next bit or were they all sort of something that you aimed for? No, look, I think I always wanted to be, I wanted to be in magazines I don't know that I ever articulated the goal to myself of, of editor-in-chief until it was probably on the horizon. And I think that's probably been the way for my career the whole time. You know, when I first got that job when I was 17 and in that girlfriend office, which is very interesting being a, a teenager working for a teen magazine at a time when <laughs> magazines were really powerful as well. It was a wild time. But, you know, I, I got there and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but then I saw the beauty editor and I saw they seem to live a really nice life. Like she's <laughs> opening presents all the time and, you know, this is very glamorous. I, I came from, you know, straight out of high school. It was like if you had three varietals of impulse, I thought that you were killing it. <laughs> But to see this person with like all the Bonnie Bell, so fancy, <laughs> all the moisturizers, you know, I, I thought that was just so amazing. And that sort of then quickly became my goal. And then, you know, I was a beauty editor for a long time before I really decided that I wanted to edit something, but those each step kind of led to the next. I wasn't necessarily looking at it as just stepping stones. Mm. I think that's another really hard part that a lot of people grapple with is when you do take lots of different stepping stones, like it's a really subtle balance between enjoying what you have and appreciating that you once wanted to be where you are, but then agitating for change when you know it's the right time to move to the next challenge, whether that's in the same magazine or in a different magazine or a different area altogether. How did you know when it might have been time to move to something else? Like how do, do you think we all should have multiple roles and chapters on our journey, like do each of those represent something that you learned that you think now equips you the best? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting and knowing when to move on and when is the right time, I guess, from a strategic point of view to look at your career and think, is this the right time to move on? And when it emotionally matters to you to move on. I think I've always kind of worked with the latter where I don't yeah. really like change, to be honest, not in my professional life anyway. I, you know, I've worked with the same group of women for 15 years. Some of them, like I, I do tend to so I like, I like knowing what I'm doing and, but I, I do, you know, I, I will let myself sit with that feeling of like, oh, it's probably time. I'll let myself sit with that for quite a long time until I wake up one day and I'm like, I gotta get out of here. I'm, you know, <laughs> the next thing is I'm ready for the next thing. And so I, I think that comes back, back to that openness again and, and being open-minded to, to what comes next and how you get there. And yeah, I think it's important to, to follow your gut instead of maybe your head. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we do drown out what our gut is telling us a lot of the time and just go with our head and then sort of wonder how we end up in this position where we're like, this doesn't align. I'm not having a good time. Like, how did I make decisions that led me here? I think it's that sense of like, is this serving me or do I need to move on from it? Yeah. And asking yourself that question constantly. Yeah. So I feel like I'm skating over so much detail of such an incredible career, but you've had so many amazing positions that I'm like, oh, we can't dive into all of them. It's just so wonderful. So, I mean, Girlfriend, BBC, Pacific Magazines, Marie Claire, until in 2013, you became the editor-in-chief of Elle Australia, which gives me goosebumps to think that you started there and you wanted to be, as a young girl, you wanted to be editor-in-chief and then you actually, like very few people can say that their younger dreams 
was something they actually achieved. Like often the dream changes, but for you, you actually got there. So for those who are uninitiated in the editing and publishing industry, talk us through what an editor-in-chief actually does. Like I think we take that for granted. (laughs) Some of the bits you enjoyed the most and then take us through the ceasing of publication of Elle and that big pivot and your sort of experience of readjusting your metrics. Yeah. Well, I had been, um, I'd been editor of a magazine called Shop Two Drop for about five years. And in that time, there were rumours, uh, that magazine was really successful and, and, I, and I loved working there, but there were rumours that Elle was coming to Australia and uh, was, was being relaunched in Australia. And I was just a woman on a mission. Like <laughs> I was possessed. I would bore everyone silly talking about it. I was doing constant pitching. I was throwing myself at people and sending desperate emails and, and it went on for years. So when I, y- yes, I kind of achieved that dream and I got it, but it was absolute blood, sweat and tears to get there. So I think it was, um, it was maybe a year until the magazine was confirmed and then it took a really long time for them to confirm me as the editor. So it was a real process and it was though, you know, Elle was not only the magazine that I had started, you know, that had opened my eyes to this industry, but it was also um, my favourite magazine. The US and the UK versions were just, you know, they were my absolute favourite magazines and, and the magazines that I looked for for inspiration all the time. And I had such a clear idea in my head of what magazine I wanted to bring, what version of that magazine I wanted to bring to Australia and why it was missing in our market. You know, I wanted something that was going to be very, um, first for someone who loved fashion, but also loved a lot of other things. I wanted to learn about, you know, what books she should read and who wanted to, who was interested in politics and all the things that my friends and I talked about at a great dinner party, but I, I never really saw in a magazine form. I didn't see all of that packaged up together. And so mm. I was really excited to bring that magazine to the Australian market. When I eventually got the job, you know, I had already been an editor for, for quite a few years, but it's a whole different level when you're working on, on one of those big international titles and there are some wonderful things about it. And of course it's, it's, incredibly challenging and I think people think that editors walk around and you're like in funny face you know think pink and and <laughs> these like moments of these epiphanies of of what color is going to be in season or what shape people should be wearing and obviously it's very little of that and there's lots of it that is just any normal you know management position in a business you're running a business you're looking after P&Ls and you're having staffing issues and you're dealing with you know, management coming down, complaining about your career expenditure and all this really unsexy stuff. Mm. And then there's the other side of it, which is a lot of the time, which is, you know, flying around the world, going to fashion shows and sitting front row and, and, and witnessing these incredible spectacles of creativity. You know, you obviously work with incredibly talented people and I don't know, I, I, there are so many parts of it that, for a girl who grew up the way I did, who could only dream of that kind of thing, where I would quite honestly, like I'd be all cool, calm and collected on the outside, but inside, you know, my tongue's hanging out. It's like a gog. <laughs> and it's a really, it's a very special, um, rarefied existence. It, it's a joy in many ways. So it balances out all of the, you know, the tediousness that comes with any standard pen-pushing management job. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a very big part that doesn't get as much airtime. We definitely think of right, editors as... so. Who cares? <laughs> 
We think of you guys as swanning between Paris and London and Milan. And <laughs> there is much, much swanning. I mean, I was on a plane to Europe about once every six weeks, you know, and you'd often go because I had kids. So say I had to go to an event in New York. So I'd, you know, fly to New York. I'd be there on the ground for 24 hours and then I'd fly home, you know, just do what I had to do and then come back. So I was constantly in this like state of complete mental and physical exhaustion that was sometimes hard to justify and I think you know with where the world is sitting now it's it feels like it's of a complete other time it's really hard to imagine how we even justified that sort of travel and and extravagance but that's the job Mm. and you know that that was the joy of the job and and I would never take that for granted it was very special yeah oh my gosh I can only imagine some of the experiences that you walked into just like how am I here like what even is this okay next week I'm flying to Morocco for the for the birthday of a necklace (laughs) (laughs) and it becomes just second nature and very very normal and and you know you become really close to the people you know, your colleagues, your other editors, and and you would travel together and become almost like a little family. And yeah, it, it, it was so lovely in so many ways. Mm. So I think one of the, I mean, the world is changing so rapidly as we've discussed, but the publishing world of all industries is changing so dramatically. The landscape is constantly reinventing itself mm-hmm. and everyone in it has to sort of evolve. Like I think the change that accompanied the first decade of your career is probably nothing compared to what mm. now happens year to year or even month to month. So talk us through the sort of ceasing of publication of Elle and when you were outgoing as an editor and how you feel now about the industry and how people can keep up because mm. something else I wanted to ask you about without talking about the change is it's very difficult in an industry like that to balance like showing your pure skill in the role and managing likability with also going for roles and being that person who's like irrepressible and just like you know but also still maintain like it's so hard to balance all the different parts of who you need to be to get roles like that so for someone who's aspiring to have a career like yours but who is also entering this crazy world of publishing and who since you have also moved on to a new chapter as well I know this think of the sciences (laughs) (laughs) yeah what what would you say to people approaching the industry now and and what would you say reflecting on now you having pivoted into a whole new role I mean I think it's very easy to get caught up in the idea of what you should be and, you know, particularly with, a, with an end goal like an editor-in-chief role or a CEO role, but whatever it is that you're considering. I think, you know, it's really easy to think of, you know, who, who do I need to be to achieve that? And one thing that I really learned in going for the L role, you know, I had, I had so much kind of self-doubt because who I was as an editor was very different to the existing editors of fashion magazines in this country at that time. You know, yeah. I was always very open for example with with my readers and very intimate with editors letters and you know I just am who I am I I, I can't really hide who I am it's all out there for anyone to see you know I didn't know if I needed to be a little bit fancier a little bit you know a little bit um chillier and you know I, I didn't struggle with it but it definitely was something that played on my mind as I went into the role and I realized you know the the best way that I could do that was just to, to do it my own way. And you, you can't really, you can't get away with pretending to be someone you're not for a very long time. So I learned quite early on that it was best to forge my own path and be my own person in that sense than to try to 
put on any kind of role or or play the part that I thought needed to be played for that. Yeah. But then um, I guess in terms of what's happened to the industry, I mean, God, it, it's so devastating to think that, you know, so many great magazines have closed in Australia in such a short amount of time. And, you know, while I do think that some of that consolidation was probably necessary, I don't know that it needed to be as extreme or I guess as as intense as it was. Mm. You know, I, I think a lot of that came down to mismanagement, which has been, of course, very well documented. But that doesn't change the fact that you know, it's such a sad thing for all of those incredibly talented people who dedicated their lives to an industry. And then, as you were saying, I sort of now left thinking, you know, what comes next in many cases? Mm. And as I said, I'd been mulling over my exit from L for a little while. And then when I was offered the role that I'm currently in editing the David Jones fashion magazine for an agency. So I work for an agency called Medium Rare, who are just an exceptional content agency. And, you know, when that offer came through to me, it was really hard to ignore some of the stats, you know, not that I thought that we would close at L anytime soon when I was there, but the numbers that were shown to me in terms of this new way of distributing a fashion magazine through a retailer and through their direct mail, you know, the numbers were so astounding the numbers in terms of my budgets and what you know what I could create were amazing because that those budgets had been just slashed over the years and years and years so that it was becoming you know harder and harder to keep up the quality and Mm. so it very much felt to me like branded content was the future or that you know it was a, a way for me to do what I knew I was good at but in a in a brand new world and so that was really like a bit of a gift from the gods in that sense it wasn't a, a place that I ever expected that that I would go to I, I genuinely thought right, I've got this job at L. I love it. I love the brand. I love the title. I love the L family internationally. I'm just going to be here till I die. I'm just going to be <laughs> one of those old people that they wheel in and I'll have an office here and I'll, you know, make my editorial decisions. And then maybe at some point I'll, you know, retire to the bar in Hinterland and have an artisanal cordial business or something. But <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I never imagined that I would um, have to enter a new part of the industry, you know, and learn completely new things. But the opportunity presented itself and actually it was the perfect opportunity at what has turned out to be the exact right time. Oh my gosh, the universe has such interesting ways, the way it will extract you from something. You never thought that you necessarily even wanted to leave, Yeah. but that I often say uh, beautiful new beginnings are often disguised as painful endings. So while it was a tumultuous and very, very sad time for many in the publishing industry, the way that they have had to reinvent themselves and reapply their skills and maybe realize perhaps that they had become complacent because they had worked so hard to then just occupy this role that might, you know, they thought was like a forever role. There are many, many different but new opportunities that you can still go after, even if they might not be the ones you thought you were heading towards. Absolutely. And I think the skills that so many of the people who, you know, have only recently kind of lost their jobs and are, are, are trying to find their new way those skills are so easily applied to the new world. I mean, yes, it, it can be traumatic, that transition, but I think that even, even in this business, I have picked up so many of the people who've lost their jobs because they're so talented and writing is writing and storytelling is storytelling, whatever mm. form that takes. So if you're good at that, you know, you can apply it to, the, to this brand new world that we're in. Yeah, totally. A quick word from today's partner in Yay, one of my longtime favourite shopping destinations, David Jones. David Jones. 
I'm so grateful that David Jones have not only made today's episode possible, but are also bringing us the best in skinnovation. It's been absolute madness this year with so much uncertainty, but I found so much comfort in the little things that I can control. It's no secret to anyone that I've been using the time to ramp up my previously very basic skincare regime, and the online Skinnovation Hub has been a great new resource for all my skincare needs, from learning about ingredients, tips and tricks from industry experts, and even discovering new products. Something I value so highly in a shopping experience is having access to a breadth of different brands, but all in the one place. And David Jones offers everything from exclusive luxury must-haves like SK2 or Sisley Paris to mindful trailblazers like one of my absolute favorites, Grown Alchemist, whose founder has actually joined us in a previous episode. With a depth of expertise and wisdom offered through in-store and online consultants, the sometimes intimidating skincare landscape becomes an educational, empowering and fun experience. They've also just launched their online skincare finder to help you discover your personalized skincare match. Simply fill out an online questionnaire and receive a bespoke skincare routine with tailored product recommendations. And I can't believe I only just found out that they offer in-store beauty services in dedicated beauty rooms with the cost of many skin treatments being redeemable on the purchase of product. La mer facial, anyone? <laughs> Head to the Skinnovation Hub to find out more. Dave jones.com slash skinnovation. So tell us about your brand new role in this brand new world. It is such an exciting pivot and I've loved watching how you have like going in agency side is like such a new experience and it's so exciting to see you go back to being a beginner and like be willing to take that whole new step from something that is incredibly like not comfortable but it is something that you've been working towards for a very long time what was that like it was it was awful (laughs) (laughs) you know you think you've got it made you've built the skills for one thing for your whole life and then it's like oh my god I'm thrown into this I'm a newbie again absolutely and you know in my first couple of weeks I you know I kept coming home to my husband oh my god what have I done and I'd be you know googling phrases under the table and terminology under the table in meetings I had no idea what they meant and um and he'd be like you know you've talked a lot about comfort zones over the years but I don't think you've ever really left yours this is what this means like this is this is the the literal definition of leaving your comfort zone Mm. then I'd be like I know but my old comfort zone came with free handbags (laughs) (laughs) I mean the thing is that I've been in this role for two years now and and it was that challenging transition what's really interesting the fascinating thing to come out of it is you know, I think while comfort is a lovely thing and I'm the first one to be, you know, I wasn't someone who necessarily wanted to be pushed out of my comfort zone, put it that way. I look at the work that I do now and it's ideated on such a deeper level. So, you know, this is corporate. So in, in traditional magazines, I could just come up with a random idea on the way to work and then I'd go into the office and I'd tell a few people and they'd all make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it was very easy to have these kind of big ideas, whereas now, it's corporate. So when I have an idea or we theme a season for David Jones, it's very much based on on data and on insights. And that's put together very carefully. And then we look at how we will play that across, not just Jones, which, which launches the season and is a big part of what I do, but actually not that big. It's, it's just part of what I do. And then we see how that plays out across 
Mother's Day or Father's Day or Valentine's Day or a sale period. And, and so it's really interesting to, I guess, watch something take on a life that goes so far beyond me mm. and to be able to think about things on that deeper level. And, you know, I took a lot of people with me when I left, when I left Elle. So a lot of the staff came and, and a lot of our staff now have come from traditional magazines as well. And to watch them develop and myself, I'm really proud of, of how we've all developed in terms of, you know, how we think about things and how we've transitioned because it is a very different process. It's absolutely stunning. I was looking through the last issue and it's so cool that as you have been reinventing yourself, the business has also been reinventing its aesthetic and the way it communicates with customers, still maintaining a really strong range of heritage brands across all areas, but adding such an innovative flair to it now, which is so exciting to watch because it is such a, such a like landmark brand in Australia mm-hmm. to watch it grow and not fall into irrelevance has been so wonderful. And the campaigns that you've been able to come up with as well, bringing your own rich history in the beauty industry to those has just been incredible. Oh, I love hearing that. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that, that I do love about David Jones is that for me, particularly in, in a world as tumultuous as the one we're living in now, you know, it's a safe space. It's been there for such a long time. You walk in, you know, it makes you feel happy to be in there. You know, I love that they're being brave enough to do some of these, you know, really interesting to, to run these really interesting campaigns and on lots of new platforms. And it is an exciting place to be right now. Yeah. So I definitely want to dive a little bit deeper as well into the self-doubt and comparison that we've touched on. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the Skinnovation campaign because we in Victoria are still in stage four. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things I've been doing this year just to get a little bit of comfort and familiarity and also just to pass the time has been to take control of the one part of my life that I can actually still control which is my beauty regime and I've been a bit of a beauty noob for most of my life but I've spent a lot of time catching up using all this time at home while everything else is in flux so tell us about this particular campaign and why coming from the beauty space it's such an exciting thing for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same as you. I mean, your skin looks glorious, by the way. Oh, thank you. I knew I was seeing you. So I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a little bit the same. Even though I was a beauty editor forever, I was terrible. It was like a classic case of do as I say, not as I do. So I, like, I never washed my face. I never, <gasps> I never finished a product. I'd always, like, try the shiny new thing and then I'd move on a week later. So nothing ever had a chance to really work on me. And it's taken this pandemic to really make me care about my skin the way it needs to it's probably come at exactly the right age in my life (laughs) but yeah so I don't know if it's just because I've got more time at home to look in the mirror or just more time in general but but I'm exactly the same and it's really kind of brought on this sense of taking control of my skin really kind of following things through and putting the care in that it needs and Skinnovation as a campaign which is the new skincare campaign from DJs that is, has, has been a real opportunity for us to take the idea behind it is, is where knowledge meets power. So it's really about arming yourself with all the information that you need to be able to create real change in your skin. And um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. We've been able to talk to some great experts and really sing about some wonderful products. And you mentioned before how DJs has this great mix of heritage brands like Lemaire, which I love, obsessed with. 
have been for many, many years with new brands and exciting new technologies. <laughs> and there are so many great products there that I'm discovering all the time. It's just a treasure trove. I think that beauty hall is like, that it really is my happy place. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think also for someone who I kind of find beauty a little bit intimidating because I don't come at it from such a place of understanding, which means that being somewhere where you can actually access heritage brands and like game-changing newcomers all at once to address them for different things with people who will actually explain to you what the difference is. It's so much more accessible than going into a store that's just that brand and only looking at what they do. Like I love that variety. What are your top five? Like I want to pick your brain from an, a now expert's perspective while we've got you. What are your top five favorite products right now that we all need to know about? Oh, that's so tricky. Five. I've only just learned. I'm like creating this new Korean skincare routine for myself with many, many, many products. <laughs> I know it's like minimum nine layers on average that Korean ladies put on their face. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You know what? What I'm really loving at the moment, and I don't think this would just be me, is I'm loving an oil because mm. it is, you know, I'm not in Melbourne. We're not in stage four, but it it is a traumatic time and there's so much change happening and I just really want to treat myself. I think that element of self-care coming through in skincare is really important. Of course, I want technology and amazing ingredients, but I also think that that sensorial, experiential element of skincare adds a lot and, and can make a real difference. So I'm obsessed with oils, which oils, oh, Sisley make this beautiful black rose facial oil that is just like liquid gold. It's incredible, obsessed with that. Shumura do a beautiful cleansing oil. I mean, I just feel like sometimes by the end of my skincare routine, I could pop myself in the oven and have a good roasting. I'm so sad. <laughs> but I love taking a cleansing oil and taking a couple of pumps of it. And then it's not a new product, but Dermalogica do a, a microfoliant. It's like a really fine exfoliant that you can use every day. And I put a little bit of it in the oil and make it into like a paste. You would normally mix it with water and then massage that in. And that kind of gives me this really nourishing cleanse. I'm not such a fan of like of a lot of, cleansing because I think it can really strip your skin and can create a bit of trauma and so the idea that I'm nourishing my skin while I'm cleansing it um, really appeals to me so I love that Clarins also do their famous tonic body oil which I'm loving and I actually just did a um, I had a chat with Eleanor Pendleton uh, who is Eleanor. a wonderful She's beauty expert and she was saying that she uses hers in the shower and I think that's really a fabulous like you know, I've tried it a few times now. And when you put it on the scent of all those essential oils and plant extracts just kind of, you know, it hits you with the steam. And it's, again, turning, I guess, what could be just a practical application of a product into something that feels much more sensorial and special, like a little bit of a day spa in your morning. Mm. Um, I'm very obsessed at the moment with this brand called Uma. Again, I'm still on oils. <laughs> <laughs> Uma is, is a beautiful um, oil brand from a family in India who have been creating, they've been creating the essential oils or farming the essential oils for um, the Indian royal family and lots of really famous beauty brands for many, many years. It's this real farm to bottle concept that is very luxurious and gorgeous. I don't know, they're my favourites. I don't know if that was five, but that's what I'm loving <laughs> right now, just like the big oil slather. <laughs> no, oh, my gosh, I love that. I love the idea of an oil slather. <laughs> and one thing, the other thing that I've been really into recently, which I think is this whole idea that you were, you were touching on of old and new, 
is this idea of the ingestible beauty and mm. you know and supplements so i've been using um the vita glow anti-geox ah. and that is just a little sachet in a glass of water so i'm making sure i get my my hydration hit in the morning too and i love that idea that you're working on your skin health from the inside and the outside and i think that feels like a really modern take on skincare as well and almost like you know the extra step we have our 14 skincare steps and then we have <laughs> additional inside skincare step which I think is very very important and I'm really noticing a difference from that actually. I think that's such a big part of the essence of skinovation is the idea that you do look at beauty from all different angles like it's not just topical and it's not just aesthetic it's like inner beauty as well which I'm excited is becoming a bigger part of the industry than it once was. Yeah and you know for someone who's really lazy like me I like that I've done that and it's like my one good deed of the morning for myself (laughs) and I can go on and eat whatever you know crap I find in the fridge (laughs) or I'm like no but I've ingested my collagen so I'm good (laughs) yeah I do that with like a broccoli I'm like oh I ate one piece of broccoli so I I have tick my health for this week baby steps (laughs) so we've kind of touched on a few of the challenges along the way but I also have a whole section called NATA which is on pretty much the things that say nay to your joy that get in the way of your joy or of your ultimate you know just living your best life and I think these don't necessarily get as much airtime, but they're again the part that really humanizes your experience and also reassures others listening that none of us are alone in the things that we face along the way it can look really shiny and it can look smoother than it ever is but there's always there is self-doubt there's comparison there's burnout and exhaustion there's juggling the priorities as a mother versus your priorities professionally and there's endless overconnection as well in a digital landscape that requires us to be online all the time for our jobs there's just so many layers of stuff that makes it hard to manage on our pathways and I think for someone as incredibly successful as you but also someone who has four kids I don't know how you do it so what have been some of your biggest challenges along the way and how have you how have you faced them um well I mean we touched on this a little bit earlier I think that transitioning out of you know, what was such a comfort zone for myself. You know, it was really interesting to be an old dog learning new tricks and more challenging than I think, than, than I thought it was going to be. But the, the really challenging part for me, which I actually find really, um, you know, it's difficult to admit to this, I think, but I was in that job and I would look at other people in our industry and I'd be like, you know, oh God, you know, everyone's so caught up in it. And I've got these kids at home and it keeps me real and I've got my real friends and, you know, and I didn't think that I was so attached to this idea of the title Mm -hmm. and the status of it all. And then I left and I really fucking was. And I, I didn't even realize how much it affected me. And so people would say to me, you know, what do you do for work? And I'd be like, well, I used to be the editor of Elle and, you know, and it was really weird. And I, I did really struggle with this idea of like kind of losing what was such a huge part of my identity. And as much as, you know, I love what I do now and, and I love the work that we do, but it's not my identity. You know, I, I work for an agency and I produce a product for a corporation. And so it's a very different, um, a different level of satisfaction. You have to get your satisfaction from a different place. And so, you know, that was something that I really struggled with for a long time was, was letting go of that part of my identity. And as I, as I said, in the end, I ended up uh, finding a, a really wonderful career coach just to talk me through that. And she works with a lot of CEOs who retire and then sort of, you know, say what next or, or athletes who, 
who retire and then realize they they're only 35 and they have no idea what to do with the rest of their lives and and she was really wonderful at giving me a sense of of momentum past having achieved that one big goal that I'd had my whole life and then and, and then looking towards the future because I, you know it is still a long time it's a, it's it's still a huge part of my career is left to come and so you know she was wonderful at that so I think it you know it never hurts to pull in some professional help when you're struggling I mean social comparison I think you know it is a it's a big one I I find it so interesting that even like every woman I know goes through an element of of anxiety when it comes to that sort of thing I wish Instagram would just you know, implode in some ways that we didn't have to deal with it. It makes me wonder, my God, if we struggle with it and we know how it works and we're in the industry and we're grown women who know who we are, imagine how that must affect teenagers today. You know, I love my teenage sons and I'm often very happy that, that, that they're not girls and they're not, you know, um, it's a relief to think that the boys are much simpler creatures and they don't look at the world <laughs> in that way. But you know, I think that's, it's also been one of the great things about the pandemic is that no one's doing anything very interesting. So you've got so much less to compare. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I'm also quite happy through this period because I think inside, I've always been a bit of an introvert and um, I never let her fly. I never let that, that inner introvert come out. So it's really enabled me to kind of be the true me and not leave my living room. <laughs> I'm the same. It's just let me be the hermit that I've always wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so interesting what you said about identity and attachment because I think that's something so many of us face and a lot of us have a critical point where you sort of break what you had to refine what you actually want and a lot of that involves letting go of what you thought success was or stopping caring about success so much and focusing more on fulfilment. How did your metrics for measuring yourself change around that time? Like do you think it's it's hard when you are successful and you do hit the goals of what you thought was success because then what's next? And that's why I don't aim for success anymore because it's so static. It doesn't evolve and it doesn't, there's nothing after the destination. It's not the process that you're enjoying. So how does your, yeah, how did your relationship with success kind of change? I think I became much more holistic in my thinking about success and, and fulfillment. So, you know, I'd been relatively tunnel visioned when it came to career and I'd always you know obviously I had a family but you know I was very um focused on my career and it was probably the biggest part of my identity and then um and then when this happened look, around the same time I had a lot of personal change I had a divorce I remarried um I had another baby and I think my I started to get a lot more of my fulfillment from other places it, it wasn't necessarily coming from work anymore and um, I think there's not, it's not a bad thing to think of work sometimes as transactional. You know, we don't have to, I, I look at people who, who turn a successful, fulfilling hobby into a career sometimes. And I think, oh, you've now lost this little thing that you had that was just joy. And it now becomes the thing that has to, you know, sustain you. And, and that's, mm. I think, um, not always a good thing. And it's nice to be able to think of, of work as something. Yes, you'll get your satisfaction from there. You want to be challenged. You want to love what you do. You want to be passionate about it. But it doesn't have to be your be-all, your, you know, your be-all and end-all. And for me, I definitely started to think of how I was feeling fulfilled and happy at home. And that sated me a lot more than it had in the past. And those two things kind of combined. So mm. that, that was sort of where, where I got to with that. So it, 
because it worked out quite well. <laughs> and that leads so beautifully to the final section, which is your play TA. And that is the exact idea that we all need to have something that's sort of sectioned off that is just for joy, that isn't necessarily something we turn into an achievey activity that we make our livelihood and that is just allowed to be something we do, whether we're good at it or not, and whether it, you know, whether we get better at it or not, whether there's any sense of progress or not. And, um, but before we do jump into that, I just have one more question, which I think you would probably have a lot that's valuable to people listening is on that idea of balance. Mm -hmm. Some people don't even ascribe to it. familiar with the word I think the play TA section is sort of part of that whole concept of balance whether you even try and achieve balance what that looks like I think so many mums and parents generally have a really hard time Mm. letting themselves off the hook for just looking after themselves and not needing to self-sacrifice to feel like they're doing a good job at parenting and their job and like there's just a it's a mess of like finding what's the right right way of juggling it all so I mean how do you navigate that you know I mean it can be um it's obviously a a challenge for so many women in particular I think this idea of of balance but particularly around guilt so you might have balance but always in the back of your head there's this idea that you know you should be doing something else so you don't feel balanced inside even if you've managed to kind of navigate the time and I think I was like that for a long time you know I was working three or four days and I would feel like I had these, you know, I had a day at home and I could clean my house and I could organise my life and, you know, go and get a wax, whatever I needed to do. So, like, it sort of looked like I had balance, but inside I was just constantly churned up about the guilt of what I wasn't doing at that time and what I was not doing good enough. And then, you know, I think the only way to really achieve any kind of balance, and I don't, I don't really subscribe to the word, but is to just start letting stuff go, like not overthinking it. You know, I, for example, hate playing with my kids. <laughs> I love my kids. I love reading to them. I love doing stuff with them, but I can't, I don't get on the floor and I don't play. And I used to feel guilty about that. And now I'm just like, that's what Hato's for. That's what my husband's for. And I bring something else to their life at a different time. And so, you know, I think it's so much of, of a sense of balance, mm. not, not balance, but a sense of balance is just by cutting ourselves a break and being a bit more in the moment and, and doing whatever your gut feels is right, not sort of thinking, oh. <laughs> I can hear that they're so, playing right now. <laughs> God knows what they're doing upstairs. I'm scared of what I'm going to go back to. But really kind of, you know, whatever gets you through the night, which has been my motto, I think, ever since I became a parent, you know, I don't think we have to overthink how many whole foods we've fed our kids in the day. Like if you've got good intentions and you're trying, then you're already most of the way there. Yeah. I think that's really nice that you even say that you don't like the playing part because I think mums just have this really strong attachment to what everyone thinks is what you should do as a mum. Like there's this idea of good parenting and like all the things you need to do. But if your husband plays with them, you can do all the other things. Like not you don't need to be everything at all times. Also, the idea of playing with our children is a completely modern concept. We just Mm. used to put them out in the farm. Like... (laughs) I mean, maybe I'd feel differently if I had girls and I could play with Barbies and Sylvania families. (laughs) So really you just want to play. You just want to do girly things. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you play then when you're not being Justine the mom, Justine the editor, Justine the every other role that you play, Justine the wife? What do you do just for fun? How do you play? 
Um, you know, we are a big games family. So we spend <gasps> a lot of time around the dining table playing games. My husband and I um, play a lot of backgammon. So oh, like a, a lot, like a, a disturbing amount. I don't actually know how we get anything done or keep anyone fed and housed. So, you know, we're really competitive with it as well. So we, we play a lot of that, but the whole family plays games. So we really love Settlers of Catan and we're such nerds. Um, I love it. We ride. We've been playing a, a dice game that I don't know, my husband discovered recently called Greed, which is really old, but is really fun. Lots of card games, lots of shithead as a family. So, you know, when we travel, you know, we've traveled around the world and we always have cards in, in my bag and oh. we'll pull it out at a table in a restaurant and waitresses always comment on it. But it's really, um, I, I guess that's kind of our way of connecting and releasing, but we are very competitive. It's not necessarily about not winning. As <laughs> Everyone in my family likes to win. I always say that about rest. I'm so competitive that I'm like, I need to achieve at resting. Am I winning <laughs> at resting? Did I get an A plus at resting today? Or <laughs> spirit. <laughs> so second last question, just to finish out, what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in interviews? Oh my gosh. This is that humanizing thing again. Like, I feel like we, we know a lot of things about you. There's a lot of interviews out there, <laughs> but there's not a lot of stuff. That's just like who you are when you're not on, you know, when you're not being interviewed. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I feel like some of those things come down to the things that we say, like you were saying, you know, as women, we're so aware of what people think of us and what is the fashionable thing to say in terms of, you know, parenting. And I love it when you hear a mother telling her child off in public and she's like, we don't do that here. And then, you know, behind the scenes, you know, she's going, <laughs> I guess, you know, for me, I, my unfashionable opinion is that I really love technology <laughs> and I don't mind being overconnected. I really love just fucking around on the internet, actually, and I'm quite proud to say that. Um, yeah, girl. <laughs> I am a, you know, I don't know, I feel like I'm so open. I've said everything. I'm very. What would your husband say that, like, he would, only he would know from, like, like the snoring to, like, the weird habits and the stuff that, like, only people who live with you would know? Okay, I have three horrendous 90s tattoos. <gasps> Sometimes they have to accidentally see the light of day because one is on my foot and one I've almost got rid of is on my ankle. But one of them I've been trying to get rid of for like 12 years and the thing just won't fade. So oh this my is, gosh. And, and my kids tease me about it. My <laughs> Everyone teases me about it. So that that's a thing. What are they? Oh, my God. It's so like it was like if Drew Barrymore got it in 1993, I would get it too. Okay, so, so like butterflies, rainbows. Butterfly, there's a daisy chain, there's a sun. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> It's not high fashion at all. There's nothing couture about my about my tattoos. But leave them on long enough and they'll go vintage and then it will become like really fashion to have from that era, you know, like it just comes back around, just wait, your time will come again. I'm pretty sure we already already went through the 90s revival and no one wanted them. So <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> yeah, can I count those as three? Because there's three. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and very last question, what's your favourite quote? Oh, well, you know, I hate to say this because I don't know how I feel about Sheryl Sandberg anymore, um, obviously because of Facebook, you know, like I struggle with that as much as anyone. But I do love the quote that done is better than perfect. And I think that kind of sums up my entire life, mm. to be honest. Mm. <laughs> I need that one so much because my default position is like intense anal retentive perfectionist, but I wouldn't get 
anything done if I really did everything to the standard <laughs> that I would like it to be done at because I agonize over stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah, just get it done. Maybe you could get a tattoo of that. <laughs> <laughs> I have five already, but none of them are 90s, so I'm I'm, I'm okay with them now. You're winning. Yeah, I feel like I need to just like just calm down on the tattoos thing in case this exact thing happens in a decade. I'm like, I have seven tattoos that I hate because I had this moment with a quote and I really wanted to put on my body. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was one thing when I was, you know, in a little floral mini dress at, you know, the 1993 big day out or something running around with my hippie tattoos. But then, you know, then I started to get really expensive shoes and <laughs> it didn't work. It's just a, a whole clash of things going on there. Your ankles are just a real situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining. This was an absolute pleasure and um, I just could keep talking forever. I know. We're going to have to go to lunch. <laughs> that was so much fun. Thank you for having me here. This one really made my brain tick about reinventing yourself and how sometimes it's wonderful but also quite challenging to achieve a goal you've had for so long. I've also added a lot to my beauty shopping list in this episode. I don't know about you guys, but I was scribbling notes furiously. Please do share this little dose of yay if you enjoyed it and tag at Justine underscore Cullen and myself to let us know what you took away from it. And of course, check out the David Jones Skinnovation Hub. Your skin can thank me later. I'll pop a link in the show notes. I hope you're all having a wonderful week, especially my fellow Victorians as a few restrictions start to ease. And I hope you're all seizing your yay. 